bled us white, oh bastard. They've taken everything we had. And not just from us, from our fathers, and from our fathers' fathers. And from our fathers' fathers' fathers. Yeah. And from our fathers' 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 fathers. You're all right, Stan, don't labour the point. And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct? What? The aqueduct. Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. That's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, Reg. Remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you, the aqueduct, the sanitation, the two things the Romans had done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously yeah. the roads. I mean, the roads go without sand, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Education. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's something yeah. we've really missed, Reg, the Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly like to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace? Oh, peace! Shut up! <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Our Interesting Times. It is a pleasure to have Dr. E. Michael Jones back on the show. Dr. Jones returns to discuss an article he recently wrote regarding the, the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, Requiem for a Figurehead. Of course, Dr. Jones is the editor of Culture Wars magazine, the author of many books, including The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and its impact on, on world history, and the most recent uh, book, uh, The Dangers of Beauty, The Conflict Between Mimesis and concupiscence in the fine arts. Dr. Jones, how are you doing this evening? Good, Tim. Good to be here. Well, thank you for coming back on the show. Before we get into the main top, I'd like to get your take on this political stunt that Ron DeSantis has pulled off. Uh, apparently, he decided to enrich uh, the fine folk, liberal folks of uh, Martha's Vineyard with some 50, uh, I guess, mostly uh, illegal aliens from Venezuela. They flew them in, and they were there for about I guess a day, less than a day, and then they were uh, unceremoniously uh, removed by the National Guard. Mm -hmm. Over 300, <laughs> I think, troops were mobilized to remove 50 <laughs> of these Shame. enrichers. <laughs> yeah, the uh, best he the best headline I saw was "Mi casa es su casa." <laughs> <laughs> well, they explained this can't handle the They're not Brownsville, Texas, or El Paso. That's right. They're I know they're. We we figured that one out already. You know? <laughs> oh no, it's Martha's Vineyard. I know. Look, how many people could fit on Obama's estate? You know, I mean, that's a lot. That's a big estate. Well, as it was explaining, Martha's Vineyard is a small island with a lot of big houses. They don't have the, the resources there. Uh, I think I think Obama's estate is twenty nine acres. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can fit a lot of people there. You yeah, know, so, uh, tents, I, homeless people. Tents. So I guess uh, public services it, it pays you well because the Obamas. I don't think they've. I don't know how you earn uh, the, the house costs like fourteen million dollars. Uh, what does he earn as president? I think it was four hundred thousand dollars, but he did four hundred thousand dollars. That's right. So he could save a lot of money. Yeah. Well, I no, guess the, the, eight years uh, in office, he probably could have gotten uh, a good down payment on that if he just banked it all. all right. That's right. <laughs> but there may be other sources of money that he's not telling us about. Yeah, there might uh, be actually. Yeah, like the Clintons, uh, they have their Clinton Foundation, and you had to pay them significant uh, speaking fees. That's so right. Way out of proportion to the quality of the speech. But uh, actually, the best take I saw on what happened on Martha's Vineyard was Ken Burns. Ken Burns is the famous documentary maker. 
became famous when he did that documentary on the Civil War. Uh, and uh, he said that sending immigrants to Martha's Vineyard is like Hitler rounding up Jews and putting them in Auschwitz. Now, I, I never thought of that. I never thought of that. Uh, first, well, they, he there, probably, there, there are he pools probably, at Martha's Vineyard. I know. <laughs> I, I said, maybe he's talking about the swimming pool at Auschwitz <laughs> or the orchestra. Maybe that's maybe that's what he's trying to tell us. Uh, uh, but then, then the stormtroopers showed up and they actually did round them up. Yes. They round up these people and they did put them in a concentration camp. But it's the other side that did that. DeSantis just uh, let, let them have free run of Martha's Vineyard where they could go to the beach and go swimming and who knows? Uh, yeah, I was. I heard people saying this was a terrible exploitation. It was cruel. It was pure evil. I was like, wait a second. He's giving him a free trip to Martha's Vineyard. I, I wish the, I had a free trip to Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> I think the weather's still nice up there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I just got back from the Jersey Shore. It was beautiful. I mean, September is the best time to be there, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, unless there's a hurricane, but th that didn't happen this year. But he's talking uh, this way because he just did a video on the United States and the Holocaust. Oh, that's right. That's coming out later this month, isn't it? Is that's right. Well, no, it's already out. It's the first uh, segment already played. Oh, is this where he blames the United States for Holocaust? This is what I call Jewish gratitude, right? Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. We're all a bunch of anti-Semites because you don't have that ship full of Jews land here. Uh, I think that's what the, the gist of this thing is. And a lot of, as he has, uh, gave Debbie Lipstadt a lot of time to talk. Uh, but unfortunately, the, these guys, they're all playing checkers when the rest of the world is playing chess. They can't think two moves ahead. So the Holocaust narrative came into being uh, after World War II. It was a collaborative effort because people like Eisenhower were guilty of war crimes. Mm -hmm specifically the Rheinwiesenlager, uh, and they needed a way to distract the world's attention from the war crimes that they had committed. And so they created the Holocaust narrative. It was basically two filmmakers. Billy Wilder did the American film, and Alfred Hitchcock did the British film. Uh, but uh, both of them, but the, the point of the, the Holocaust narrative is, is it's the, it's the uh, founding myth of the American empire. Because the American empire is a benign, a benevolent operation because we all risked our lives to save the Jews from the Nazis. That's the whole point of the Holocaust narrative. Well, now you're shitting in your own nest here. Mm -hmm. uh, because now you're declaring that the Americans were bad people. This is go You're going to wreck the narrative when you do this. You always take it one, you always turn the thing one, to, the turn the screw one turn too far and you strip the threads. And that's what, that's what they did. That's what they're doing in this. And they're too stupid to, to, to even know what they're doing. Yeah. The, uh, I guess World War II veterans now, but uh, close to a hundred or past a hundred and most are dead now. So they can, maybe they feel safe doing that. And uh, it is there's a certain amount of irony here uh, that the, the great, you know, the the uh, to the extent that World War II is understood as a as a crusade uh, is seen. A lot of that is based on you know the, the narrative of World War II, particularly Nazi tyranny and the Holocaust. Right. Now they're they're, they're no. destroying that narrative. Yeah. Yeah, it happened very quickly. As soon as Eisenhower came into the Ordruf, uh, Ordruf, uh, nobody even knows about it anymore. It was down the road from Buchenwald, which became famous. But he came in. And he saw the dead bodies lying on the ground. Well, that's indisputable. There were dead bodies mm -hmm. lying all over the place. Uh, and he said, this is important because the American soldier doesn't know what he's fighting for. He needs to know what he's fighting for. So this was the moment where Eisenhower declared the meaning of World War II. It was basically to prevent, you know, things like this ever happening again, these dead bodies showing up. And of course, the dead uh, the dead bodies are a category of reality. They were there. They were certainly there. But what he did was impose the category of the mind on them, and that took a, that took a little bit of time before that sorted itself out. So uh, it eventually became the gas chamber. But uh, before that, so right down the road from uh, Ordruf was Buchenwald, and. Uh, 
so he prepared this in advance. He sent two psychological warfare operatives in before anyone else, and they created a display. Uh, uh, and then uh, uh, Patton got uh, the mayor of Weimar to march uh, 2,000 people, citizens of Weimar, out to the camp where they had to witness this display. Well, the display was uh, C.D. Jackson, who was working under General McClure in psychological warfare. He was the most famous psychological warfare guy in the 20th century. Uh, he, he went on to become Eisenhower's campaign manager, got him elected president. Eisenhower appointed him head of psychological operations for his administration. He was then, then became uh, basically Harry Luce's right-hand man mm -hmm. for Time Magazine, which was the propaganda ministry for the United States of America at that point. Did, didn't he sequester the uh, the uh, the, uh, the Zapruder. film? Of, Zapruder yeah, film. the Zapruder yeah. film. He ended up owning the Zapruder film. Yeah. So uh, he, he, so, uh, he uh, puts this exhibit on the table. It's uh, a lampshade that's supposedly made out of human skin, which is not, it wasn't uh, a pelvis, uh, an ashtray made out of a human pelvis, which is kind of a stupid idea because it's full of holes and the ashes would go all over the place. And then two shrunken heads. And this was to show what the Nazis were capable of doing this. Well, this is preposterous. <laughs> the Nazis are shrinking heads? This Who who knew? Uh, it's it, They got them from some museum. So it was a colossal blunder. And then it went down the memory hole. Even they, they tried to enter this. I think they did were successful in entering this as, as evidence in the Nuremberg war crimes trials. But even there, it turns out that it was, you know, it's not that lampshade was not made of human skin. And it became an embarrassment and it went down the memory hole, but not before Billy Wilder uh, photographs this whole thing. And it's up on the Internet. You can watch it on the Internet. Uh, so it then became... Uh, Ailey Wiesel then said that it was uh, flaming pits. And he said, I saw it with my own eyes. Or was it a dream? This, he constantly used this, this trope in his in his book, uh, Night. Uh, but then he said he saw Nazi soldiers throwing Jewish babies into flaming pits. Well, that went down the drain because the uh, uh, United States Air Force was doing reconnaissance films of Auschwitz. And there's no evidence that they had anything. So finally, at this point, this was primarily in collaboration with the Soviets because they were the ones who took over uh, Auschwitz. Uh, and they came up with the story of the gas chamber. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's funny, This, of course, this comes up anytime there's an issue, whether it's the trucker protest in Canada right. or uh, Duran DeSantis, um, who by all accounts is a is a proud zionist <laughs> so yeah right does him no favors to, to pander does it <laughs> no <laughs> they don't get and, anything I mean, they just, no he's uh, a, they, they equate it to hitler i saw that msnbc uh the jewish interlocutor brings it up with ken burns and he's there to agree with him and it's like what what has nothing to do uh, whatever it's reduction at hitler it does know. it does it's had a little bit to do with hitler but it's the exact opposite when the stormtroopers came in and rounded up the immigrants and put them in a concentration camp that sounds like oh, hitler yes. but ron DeSantis didn't do that the democrats did that <laughs> then they accuse him of human trafficking of all things despite ah. the fact that the Biden administration has been, I think, illegally shipping thousands of, of illegal aliens throughout the country, dispersing them. And so yeah. this whole thing is sort of an electoral strategy to brown the country, as they say, you know, this unrelenting stream. These are Biden's words, by the way, of non-white immigrants uh, diluting the white population, the native white population. Um, of course, this is a violation of Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, which commands, it says, shall, the federal government shall protect the states, the individual states, from invasion. And, of course, an invasion doesn't have to be an armed force of a foreign country. It can be a, a, a horde of immigrants there to uh, disrupt, because we all know migration is often weaponized. It certainly so, is. So yes. this is an invasion, and they are in derelict of their duty. This is treason. But then again, you can't shame commas like Alejandro Mayorkas or Merrick Garland to do their duty. No, to the no. Constitution, because their this duty is, isn't to the Constitution in their mind. No, it's their duty to their their ideological group of people, and the both both of them are Jews. Yeah, and so you have this Jewish animus against the majority population, which is characteristic of Jewish thought. Wherever they are, they always hate the majority of any country that brings them in. They always feel that there are all latent anti-Semites out there, and and we have to be very vigilant and. Un, un, completely unaware that their obnoxious behavior is the main cause of anti-Semitism. 
that's that's the problem. Mm-hmm. That's the problem uh, here and now. And uh, it, it's this weaponization of race, the weaponization of migration, which they did. They subjected Europe to this. Uh, uh, took advantage of the Christian, the, the remnant of Christian feeling in places like Germany, and we have to be good to the alien and so on. It's completely mm-hmm. exploited that in a completely weaponized fashion, and now the reaction is setting in. I don't know whether you heard, but the this the, Demo- the Swedish Democrats yes. just drove that other coalition out of power in Sweden, and this is anti-migration and anti-migration party. Uh, the same thing is going to happen in Italy, according to every poll that I've been reading, where Georgia Meloni mm-hmm. is going to be elected, and she is uh, uh, an Italian nationalist. So it's it's the you know it's it's the dialectic, it's the cunning of reason. The internationalists, the Jewish internationalists, overplay their hand, and then suddenly the reaction comes, and then they they don't know, they don't know what to do. They're upset. So it's not only is it Ken Burns who's doing a uh, Holocaust documentary, Wolf Blitzer is doing one too. <laughs> so you know if Wolf Blitzer and Ken Burns are both uh, uh, upset, it must be really bad. What? Well, I, the lot, a lot new, a lot of new things can be said about the so-called Holocaust, right? If they really want to, like, if they talk about Holocaust education, I really want to talk about education we, there's a lot of questions that can be asked but they want indoctrination but it's funny there's they keep bringing this up again because they sense a reaction and they want to intimidate everyone anyone from uh saying anything and this is with this whole the white house recently had a united we stand conference uh uh and joe biden i guess was the last speaker but they had all these so-called experts susan rice there merrick garland was there Alejandro Alejandro Mayorkas was there they all basically it was a bashing whitey uh, uh, session, accusing the claiming that whites apparently represent the number one threat to domestic tranquility, and a lot of projection because they're accusing, I guess, uh, MAGA supporters, white Americans, of doing the very things that they, of course the Biden administration is guilty of doing, like violating people's civil liberties, and, uh, openly they're now they're openly calling for censorship. And of course, we, it's coming out now through litigation that the Biden administration worked hand in hand with big tech to censor people, which creates a lot of liability for big tech. There's, there could be some large settlements. I like to see that some of these operations are bankrupted and liquidated and maybe sold off because yeah. they're guilty yeah. of violating. That's right. That's right. No one, no one should have this much power. This is the role of government. Government has to step in and and uh, uh, what's uh, what should I say? Socialize the power of of the rich and powerful. And and in, invariably, when you have a new technology, it immediately goes right to uh, oligarchy, monopoly, and, and so on. Just, just exactly what happened to the railroads in the 19th century. They were ruthless in their uh, ex- exploitation of the people who had no other way of getting to market. The same thing happened with the new, tech, new internet technology. And television and radio, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so at a certain point, the government has to step in and start regulating. Well, right now it's not clear who's the who the government is. Is it Google or is it is it the uh, the people we elect? You know, uh, clearly, I think Google has more power at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's I, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll just give you one example. Uh, whenever someone in someone says, "Yeah, we'd like to have you come here and speak," they'll go to some whatever. Let's. I'll give you an example. They go to the Knights of Columbus. Okay. Uh, and so I happen to be a Knight of Columbus. This is what is known as a fraternal organization, okay? You don't have to be a millionaire to join. All you have to do is be a Catholic, okay? So you go to the head of the Knights of Columbus. What is he, you say? The guy says, I'd like you to invite E. Michael Jones to speak at our council. What is the first thing this man does? He uh, Googles your name and finds he, ADL. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. <laughs> that is exactly what happens. He Googles my name. The first two entries on Google are the ADL and the SBLC. Okay, so why is a man from Nice of Columbus a good Catholic? Why does he? Uh, why does he care what have a bunch of Jewish criminals have to say about you? That's it. Yeah, it's the question. This is a fraternal organization. You're my brother, my brother <laughs> knight here, yes. and you're you have to check with the Jew first to see if I'm a knight of Columbus in good yeah. standing. This is outrageous. It's. I, I mean, uh, I'm blaming the Catholics here. I'm blaming the Knights of Columbus. 
but the the main facilitator, this is Google. Who gave Google the right to defame me? Yeah. And I and I have no recourse. This is defamation. That's why they call it the anti-defamation league. Yeah, I was uh, I was listening to a bit of that United We Stand conference. They had some mayor talking about how the American Council of Mayors is teaming up with private organizations to combat uh, extremism and white supremacy. And the and the group he's they're teaming up with is the ADL. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you have some expert talking about uh, hate crimes, and of course his source is the ADL. Again, yeah. is this some objective and non-distant? Is this some disinterested, you know, a benign organization? No, it's a Jewish intelligence. Do, hate yeah. Intelligence so, do, do we have any recourse yeah. in law against this abuse of power? No. The answer is no. This has got to stop. So I just got before we came on. I just saw that a, a, a judge in Texas upheld their anti-deplatforming law. So uh, big tech can uh, technically be prosecuted now for deplatforming. This is uh, because it's censorship. Mm-hmm. This this is so they've completely evaded. They they have the power of government with none of the restraints that has been placed on government by things like the Bill of Rights. So the First Amendment doesn't apply here because it's a private entity. Well, who says they're a private entity? I mean, you're, you're the phone company. You're a utility. You have commandeered some new technology. And uh, you mean we're going to let this, we're all going to just sit by helplessly and government is not going to come to our assistance here to regulate this in, in the interest of the common good? This is what has to happen here. We have to get back to representative government. We don't have representative government. Now, you did uh, you wrote this piece last week regarding the, the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, requiem for a figurehead, and you kind of I think you touch on this topic in the article. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, here, the, the Queen is dead. Now we have uh, Chucky the <laughs> Third, Charles the Third. Now shame on you for your disrespect. Here. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, um, and you start the article talking about how. The uh, the queen is dies, and of course, typically you have these idiots on Twitter come out uh, and start calling her racist and wishing she has a had an excruciating uh, death, and calling her, of course, a racist and imperialist. All the rhetoric, and this, uh, 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 I guess, uh, sparked a reaction by Tucker Carlson. And you say now we're stuck between two narratives or two sides: either it's critical race theory or Whig history. Now, what is Whig history? Wig history was uh, a term uh, created by a man named Butterfield. He wrote a book called Wig History. And basically it's talking about how the history of England got cha- taken over by the Whig Party and its its scribblers, uh, people like Henry Fielding and, uh, and uh, Daniel Defoe and people like that, who created a narrative uh, which is basically justifying the usurpation of power in England. And the Protestant Reformation, the exclusion of Catholics, the looting of the, all this type of stuff, it all got marshaled into a narrative which is called Whig history. And it's basically, you know, freedom triumphs in the end. And that justifies all of the bad things that the British monarchy, British Empire did. So it's progress. So, kind of history is progress. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All the, that type of stuff. And Tucker fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. Now, God bless Tucker Carlson. He's as good as it gets on mainstream media. Mm-hmm. But I'm sorry, Tucker. <laughs> it was not a benign enterprise. I mean, there's too much DNA in me to allow this thing to pass. My Irish genes and my German genes reacted immediately to this uh, uh, calling the British Empire benign. Uh, benign is not a word I would use to describe any empire. Any empire, and I think I have St. Augustine on my side here. St. Augustine said all empires are criminal enterprises. And, and the only thing that happens over a course of time is they become more and more overtly criminal. As witness, the American empire is run by criminals now. I, I don't know how else to describe it. The rule of law has gone out the window. It's kind of political prosecution. Uh, and that's that's the situation we're in right now. So the point here is, why are we always being confronted with two equally repugnant alternatives and told to choose one or the other? Well, yeah, I guess control. You, you get caught on one of the other of the two sides, and you never really get to address the real problems, right? right. Or, or the, the complexity of history. 
right? Uh, you know, something like the British Empire, Russian civilization, colonialism in general um, is very complex, and it's it, these events don't occur in a vacuum. This is decolonization didn't occur in a vacuum because what swept in was something arguably, uh, I would say, uh, much more malignant. Um, it was exploited, right. you know, like civil rights movement was exploited by malignant forces. Right. Oligarchy again, basically it's a front for oligarchy, which is, and just you make the case in the article that uh, as a figurehead, the queen had a, had a responsibility that she didn't live up to to protect England from these uh, voracious, rapacious oligarchs that have taken. Right. Well, I'm before, I, I mean, before everybody gets upset at me for saying an awful thing, like that the queen Elizabeth was a figurehead, uh, that's what the word that Boris Johnson used in his eulogy. He said she was a figurehead. And then the next day, King Charles III uh, said that his mother was, he quoted Shakespeare, something like a model for all worldly princes. Well, I agree with Prince Charles. She was the model for all worldly princes <laughs> because they're all figureheads. That's the problem. That is precisely the problem that we have throughout the world right now. And that's precisely what is causing this reaction. So, you know, in, in Italy now, as soon as Maloney starts uh, saying we need she needs to uh, represent Italian interests, uh, Mario Draghi steps in and calls her a fascist. Well, Mario, you used to work for Goldman Sachs. Why don't you bring that up? I, I think that people like that should wear NASCAR uniforms so we know who's sponsoring them. You know, <laughs> well, yeah, you talk about you, of course, the uh, Elizabeth the uh, second, of course, the first Elizabeth, Elizabeth the first. She was the illegitimate daughter, uh, or not, I remember illegitimate, she was the rightful heir to the throne of Henry the eighth, and her legitimacy was always in question when she had the virgin queen imagery that they created. Uh, but this created this sort of, uh, uh, I guess, culminating, I guess, in the civil war. The next century, uh, but it brought because, England... because the fundamental issue was legitimacy, mm -hmm. and, and she had no legitimacy. And the problem was that when you have no legitimacy, you have to use the police state to keep yourself in power, because there was this seething undercurrent of Catholicism at the during the time of her reign, and she had to repress it brutally. And someone who knew which way the wind was blowing was William Shakespeare. Uh, he wasn't as groveling as. Edmund Spencer, who wrote The Fairy Queen uh, in honor of this grotesque lady. But uh, he he would, uh, he had a, a fund, he was a Catholic who wanted to get on in this world and great poetry came out of it. But uh, it was, it was repugnant because you're caving into someone who has no legitimacy. So the problem after that is legitimacy. And so you have uh, the 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 people who resented the the Church of England thought it was too popish, and that led to the Puritan Revolution. And then you've got even more of a legitimacy problem. Like what happens when Cromwell dies? Well, you have to bring in uh, one of the Stuarts, and now you've got uh, legitimacy. You restore the thing, but then you come to James II, and you got someone who's a Catholic who's on the throne. Now he he at the beginning had the support of the landed aristocracy because his hereditary credentials were impeccable. He was the legitimate heir. And then he had an heir of himself, and then the idea of Catholic dynasty rears its head, and then they go for the usurper, William of Orange, King Billy the Dutchman, and bring him in. To, and at this point, they resolve the conflict between the, the roundheads and the, and the Puritans, uh, no, I'm sorry, the Cavaliers and the Roundheads, uh, and it becomes a Protestant country. This is and the Glorious Revolution, was. right? Yeah, the Glorious Revolution, right, exactly. But there was still, it wasn't glorious, and it didn't solve the problem. We, You had a series of Jacobite risings following that, up to the Jacobite rising of 1745, where Bonnie Prince Charlie came within, uh, I think, 60 miles of London with his Scottish Highlanders and their claymores, these big swords that were absolutely deadly in close combat, but not really very effective against cannon. They're hundreds of yards away. And that's that's why he lost. But the the era, the, the legitimacy thing never went away because basically what, what did Elizabeth do? She turned it over. I mean, we're talking about literal criminals. We're not talking about anything figurative here. What do you think, Sir Walter Scott? Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, sir, who am, I, who am I confusing now? Raleigh. So, 
No, no, I'm sorry. Sir Francis Drake. Francis Drake, yeah. yeah the pirate. Yeah. The pirate who basically looted the Spanish main, brought back gold, and they knighted him. This it's like uh, you know, if you're gonna be a if you're gonna be a thief, don't rob a convenience store. You know, steal the country. It's it it's reached the point of parody in uh, when Dilbert and Sullivan did uh, uh the pirates of Penzance. Where they they have that uh, the song where I am a pirate king, uh, you know, this is the dubious background of uh, English English monarchy, mm-hmm. and and I think the the express. I mean, I don't know about you, but I left a week ago to spend some time on the Jersey Shore. I come back and the funeral's still going on. I mean, how long <laughs> is this thing going to go on? <laughs> and and it strikes me it strikes me that it's a manifestation of this British insecurity about legitimacy. Yeah, the Queen I, has has going to have almost as many funerals as George Floyd had. That's <laughs> and and the the more the, the more power they lose, the more decadent they become. The longer the train of the robe gets, you know what I mean. So we 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 it, it was six guys holding the train now we're up to eight maybe ten people holding the train when the king is going we still have to wait for the coronation of charles the third i mean mm-hmm. this is going to take forever why is why what is all this pomp what is the point of all this pomp to disguise the problem of legitimacy okay that's an old question but the the, the figurehead issue uh, still has not been resolved that's the fundamental question. Who who do you who are these people represent? Do the do the person in charge, the person as the office, does he represent your interest? Does Merrick Garland represent the interest of the American people? Well, uh, yeah, I think the question is rhetorical. <laughs> it is rhetorical, and the answer is no. <laughs> no and, yeah. and, and so we have other related issues about. Let's say, uh, let's say the war in the Ukraine. Another one of those guys of the same tribe is um, Mr. Blinken, and he uh, represented the United States in negotiations with Russia. Well, it's going to fail as soon as you get one of these guys in. He starts the conversation by saying he had relatives who died in the Holocaust, and then it's going to go down the drain. You know, even an egomaniac like uh, a megalomaniac like Donald Trump got along well with Putin and there was no war under his when he was in office. As soon as the Democrats take power, they send people like this over and war is imminent. War happens. Mm-hmm. By, the, by the way, just to just to bring this up, I saw a, a brilliant analysis. Uh, basically, someone sent me this Rand uh, Corporation document of January of this year. In which the whole rationale for the war came out. The whole this is war on Europe. Yes, this is war on Europe. We are trying to destroy Germany now. That is the whole point. And to get to my back to my Queen Elizabeth article, you have this Annalena Baerbock, who is the foreign minister. She's some chick in her thirties. I mean, nothing against chicks in their thirties. I I kind of like them. But what experience does she have as uh, in politics? And the the Rand Corporation document says the greens are especially good for this because they have no practical experience in government and they are very ideologically motivated in other words they're irrational so you can't talk to a lady like this and so she said publicly we're going to prosecute this war uh whether the german voters like it or not well how's that for representative government yeah so much for self-government right right yeah um yeah they're gonna germany's cutting its own throat because, uh, well, Germany's not sovereign for reasons that we've t- no, discussed. No, yeah. it is not a sovereign country. Uh, and it try, it's been trying, and this is mentioned in the Rand report that say Germany has been slowly but steadily trying to move toward being a sovereign nation. And the, the classic example of that was the Nord Stream pipelines, uh, which America saw as a an existential threat to their hegemony over over Europe through this, NATO. Yeah, this is very similar to sort of the geopolitical maneuvering in the early part of the 20th century, you know, vis-a-vis Germany and Great Britain, the British it's Empire. The same, it's the same principle. It's called yeah. the McKinder thesis. Yeah. As soon as there's some type of threat for the unification of, say, Germany and Russia, uh, the United States starts a war, or Winston Churchill starts a war. That's why he started World War I. Yeah. Now, with the... With, with the uh, 
uh, get back to you know Chris Queen Elizabeth the second and her predecessor the first is that uh, what the English Reformation did the British Reformation did was it uh, it brought England under the, under the money power and uh, and just did away with any any organized resistance or institutional resistance to usury and also uh, I think it was um, well I guess. Uh, the reintroduction of uh, of Jews into Great Britain? No, oh. not 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 quite, not quite. Mm-hmm. There were Jews there. They all had Spanish names or Portuguese names. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but uh, they they were not let back in. Uh, but, that but, as, but, uh, until much later. Yeah, much later. But I guess it was. Uh, uh, what you have um, is uh, the uh, in the in the 19th century. Uh, you had this debate about the, it's called, I guess it was Jewish emancipation in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars, but in Great Britain, you had the um, repeal of the disability laws and also the um, repeal of the uh, of the Christian oath that you'd have to take to serve in Parliament. I think it was Thomas Macaulay who argued for this, saying that admitting that Jews had a lot of financial power by bringing them open politically, you'd introduce greater accountability. But in the night, you can speak to this because you write about this in Barren Metal. Right. Uh, is the power of usury. So inexorable right. effect of usury has on the country had it brought England under, under the thumb of Jewish financial power. Can you uh, uh, elaborate on that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, the uh, Cromwell, the Puritans were flaming Judaizers. Uh, pra- praise God, bare bones. It was one of these Puritan lunatics who wanted to make Hebrew the official language of uh, England because that was the language that God spoke in heaven or some, something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but uh, Cromwell didn't let him in. He got a wor- he got a letter from a, a Puritan who was living in Germany. He said, if you think these are the people of the Old Testament, you're absolutely crazy. You should come to Germany and see the way, way they have to deal with it. So Cromwell didn't do it, but then Charles I did. As soon as he became to the throne, he let the Jews in. And Manasseh ben Israel was sent over there to negotiate. They, they froze him out. They, he didn't even know that they had changed horses in midstream. So the Jews are back in, but the, the real change didn't take place until the time of the Napoleonic Wars, because at this point, uh, Meyer Amsher Rothschild had sent his son Nathan over to London. And Meyer Amschel had basically the fortune of the Prince of Hesse Castle. He was supposed to keep it for safekeeping, but he sent it over there. And uh, Nathan bet the farm, or <laughs> the Prince of Hesse Castle's farm, on the consul, which is the bond, the uh, the long term bond, uh, which uh, was always reliable, reliable in terms of returns, uh, uh, if Napo- because uh, he bet if Napoleon were going to win, the bond was going to be worthless. So he bet on the bond. He made a killing, and then he started lending money to British aristocrats who wanted to build big houses in the country. And over the course of that period of time. They lost their houses, and they were still in the Almanach de Gotha, which is, Oscar Wilde said, it's the greatest piece of fiction in America, in British literature. Uh, and they lost their houses. They retained their title, lost their houses, and all the property fell into the hands of the Jews. So the classic example was Randolph Churchill, who was died 60,000 pounds in debt to Natty Rothschild, Instead of just uh, getting closing the debt or getting the debt from the family, they forgave the debt, but they got Winston Churchill as their pawn, and he became their uh, re- their representative. That led to World War One and so on and so forth. The Balfour Agreement, all of these things, the the thin, the the foot in the door was usury. That's how the Jews got their power in London, and that's how they turned basically the entire. Uh, aristocracy into figureheads because they were all beholden to Jewish moneylenders. It's one of the driving forces behind the Irish uh, so-called potato famine because one of the reasons why the British landlords were exporting food from Ireland in the midst of the potato famine, there were alternative sources of food in Ireland, just they're all exported and the Irish are relegated to the rotten potatoes. Um, it was the uh, pressure of user because the, the payment of interest on loans, correct? Right. They were all. It's a fundamental principle. It's in it's in Shakespeare's play Timon of Athens. So you have these aristocrats. They steal the property. Okay, great. You got the property now. But property is not money. Now you can take property. You apply labor to property, and you will get money. But they didn't want that. They're pirates. They're looters. They don't want to work 
hard labor. So they go to the Jew, they go to the money lender, and they mortgage their land, and eventually they lose the land because they can't keep up with the payments. It's that simple. That's the mechanism. That's how the Jews uh, get come into positions of power uh, anywhere where you allow them in and allow them to practice usury. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it, I think the uh, Jewish emancipation occurred in Great Britain in, Britain in the 1830s when the dis- civil disobedience law or uh, disabilities laws were repealed. Under, of course, this was the liberal appeal. Britain was becoming more liberal. This is all part of the, uh, I guess, the uh, parliamentary reforms. And now uh, within a few decades, you had many Jews espousing Jewish supremacy, serving the parliament. One, of course, was Benjamin Disraeli. Right, closely linked to Rothschild. It's an interesting story. I was reading. Um, oh, what's that Scottish economist? I forget his name. Adam uh, Smith. Uh, no, no, he's <laughs> he's a modern contemporary of ours. Uh, he, a lot of popular economists. Anyway, uh, he wrote a book about the Rothschilds. Yeah, I read that book. Um, Niall Ferguson. Niall Ferguson. Yeah, there's a, an account uh, regarding the Suez Canal purchase where Benjamin Disraeli is maneuvering to take over the Suez Canal. And he, Parliament's not in session, and so he meets with uh, Lionel Nathan de Rothschild and gets a loan from him and, to buy the uh, the, uh, the shares uh, uh, from the the, the, the Kedive of, of Egypt. Um, and uh, it, it is said that uh, Rothschild said, "What collateral do you offer?" And he says, "I offer you the British state." Yep. <laughs> so the British Empire from the mid 19th century on was largely a Rothschild interest. And this is where this is funny because you hear a lot of talk when people talk about the deep state, the British, the, the, the role of the British, particularly in, in getting the nation into World War One or World War II. Talk about the Round Table, Cecil Rhodes, Milner's Kindergarten, the Boer War, and the British interest in, in, in Africa. These were largely Jewish interests driving this. Yeah. These were cover for, for the De Beers, the Rothschilds. Um, but my point is by the late 19th century, early 20th century, what is often British was really financial Jewish interest under the cover of the British. So when people talk about these things, uh, even today, talk about British intelligences, the two were at the very least blended. And I think uh, the the the. Uh, tail began to wag the dog a long time ago. He says, and this is also true with, with America, where, Jew, where financial power, largely Jewish, has now taken over, and it has sort of a British skin to it. Uh, so uh, that's why a lot of contemporary or modern analysis of, like, you know, I'm talking about Carol Quigley and some of his analysis uh, in uh, Tragedy and Hope, is uh, we can't mention the, the ethnic or Jewish component to this, because that simply isn't polite, nor is it politically correct. It can get you a lot of trouble in some countries, so people Feel free to talk about Britain or American Empire when uh, behind that, of course, are 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 Jewish interests. Would you care to comment on that? Yeah. So the point is, if you leave out the Jewish uh, the Jewish part of the equation, you'll never understand what's going on, and everything becomes completely isolated, separate events, and there's no connection. And that is part of what what they're trying to enforce. I mean, Mm -hmm. why am why am I being demonized? by the ADL and the SPLC. They are the thought police because I'm making these connections. Am I saying that people should go out and and, uh, harm the Jew? I've said the exact opposite. It's simply because I am making these connections explicit in books like The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. That broke broke the, 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 the taboo. That broke the taboo. That's why I got on their list because they don't want people talking about this anymore. Well, it's it's late in the day, and it, we've reached the point where we cannot not talk about it anymore. I think, but, but basically, the experience of my last, what I had to go through over the past 10 years since the publication of this book, a little more than 10 years, is that uh, either you're talking about this or you're not in the game anymore. And the main group that is not in the game anymore is the group called conservatives. They have become obsolete. Because everybody knows that they're not talking about the, the, the real issues right now. That's the problem. So now the Washington posted an article on America first. What's what's conservatism look like uh, without Donald Trump or after Donald Trump? It's called America first. That's true. That's true. But now you got all these other people, these these uh, opportunists who are coming in and redefining America first. Uh, we have to prevent that because America first 
it, it, it was a historical moment in the 1930s. It, it, the main characters were people like Henry Ford, uh, Father Coughlin, and uh, Charles Lindbergh, all of whom were associated with Detroit, which meant they were all associated with manufacturing to some sense or other. Though they're in the middle of the country. It's manufacturing. It's not finance. It's anti-Wall Street. That's what it was. And it's not going to be anything else. That is that is completely relevant today. That is the issue today. Are we going to get back to uh, manufacturing? Trump uh, did this at the same time. He, he understood that. He tried to promote the re resurgence of American manufacturing, while at the same time supporting a pro-Israel foreign policy. And I think his presidency ran aground on that contradiction. Uh, I don't know whether he's sadder but wiser now. Did he did he learn a lesson from the way Benjamin Netanyahu treated him uh, when he needed his help? Uh, one of the first guys to recognize Biden as president. Has he learned a lesson? I don't know. These are rhetorical questions. Yeah, it's some, something even like a character, a political figure like uh, uh, DeSantis, who's uh, taking on uh, the federal government, the Biden administration with the immigration issue. But uh, he's not really going to the uh, root of the matter with with weaponized uh, immigration. Is this is a Jewish strategy that's been, right? We've seen in Europe and the United States throughout the Western world to dilute uh, native, you know, ethnic uh, white German populations with a flood of immigrants to create a, you know, sort of a create a Tower of Babel which they can reign over, and that, that's why you see Merrick Garland and Alejandro uh, Mayorkas. Uh, so dedicated to a not only uh, smearing and 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 declaring uh, white people terrorists, or sorry, they're counter revolutionaries because uh, Merrick Garland and Marcus these these are these are latter day Czechists. So right. when when you as a head of a family go speak before a school board to condemn critical race theory or transgender education in the schools. In the eyes of Mayorkas or Merrick Garland, you are a counter-revolutionary. You're also affecting his bottom line because his family is actually, as came out last year, is enriching itself, uh, providing curricula for critical race theory. Yeah. And so a little, and, little bit of conflict of interest there. Yeah. So but, there you have a family getting riched off the taxpayer at the same time. The program is there is demoralizing and assaulting you know the majority population. It's quite a quite a quite a scam, isn't it? Yeah. So how long is it going to take before uh, people wake up to this? The problem is you're exactly right. Uh, uh, DeSantis is in the same bind that Trump is in. So it became uh, critical after Roe versus Wade. Where the Jews all announced uh, abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. Uh, and Ron DeSantis uh, says that uh, he's got an attorney general who's Jewish who says he's not going to enforce uh, any of these laws. You have one one place after another in this country where you've got a Jew in charge who says he's not going to enforce the law. It's the, the fundamental problem with all these uh, Soros prosecutors. And so you have crime rampant, uh, 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 destroying the social fabric, and uh, no one could seem to do anything about this. Yeah, this this speaks to the issue in your article, which other people have written about, is with the queen, is queen, she was the sovereign. She had technically had the power to dissolve parliament and to, and to also to uh, to uh, uh, veto any act of parliament. And theoretically, uh, uh, for maybe the Bill of Rights, she had the same powers as Henry VIII. Um, many have criticized her for not standing up for England when the time was right. Now, she didn't mind herself getting dipping her dipping her toes into politics because she pressured Margaret Thatcher to impose sanctions on South Africa in the 80s. And she also pulled the rug out from under Rhodesia. In the 1970s, yeah. and she yeah. was very active in that. Uh, so now, as if she was aloof from politics when she felt, you know, I guess passionate enough about a particular issue. Um, but she did very little. Uh, I mean, she uh, snubbed Enoch Powell in the 70s. He was worrying about immigration, and the government. So they have a problem. There's this lady, Barbara Roche, who's in charge of immigration for Tony Blair. She's Jewish. So. <laughs> Why are Jews always in charge of immigration? Anyway, she said her primary concern in politics was fighting anti-Semitism. Well, she's not a British subject. She's not loyal to the crown. She's Jewish. That's what matters most to her. She says right. it. So she right. should be entrusted in that position because she's going to pursue no. policies that she thinks benefit Jews set apart from Great Britain. But And on top of that, they all have an animus against the majority population. Mm -hmm. This is like the Jewish lesbian who's the attorney general in, in Michigan. 
You know, she she aligns herself with the FBI under Merrick Garland to concoct this plot that someone's going to kidnap the the governor. Yes. Uh, but but it's clear uh, she's got two strikes against her because she's a Jew, because she's a lesbian. She hates them, hates normal people. It's natural. So how can you have people? How can this be possible? Well, I know why. I have an article coming out on why this is possible. It was drug money. It was basically I know the guy who did it. <laughs> I interviewed him. He's the guy who's responsible for the decriminalization of marijuana. And he, through his uh, influence and, and Soros's money, he told me he took Soros's money uh, behind Dana Nessel because he spent his life, uh, he's, he's been a, a devotee of marijuana legalization for his entire life. Be uh, and so now uh, they, he says, yeah, you know, the cops don't stop me anymore. They used to stop me all the time because of the drug business. Now they don't stop me anymore. Well, it's not that the, the, the attorney general is not going to she's going to stop prosecuting criminals. That's her job. It's just now she's going to go to the SPLC and find out uh, who the hate speech people are. And they're the people she's going to prosecute. Mm -hmm. That's what happens when when you this, this is a this, we're dealing with a fundamental crisis here of the Enlightenment. And it goes all the way back to Napoleon's emancipation of the Jews in France. They were never citizens before that happened. No one, no Christian country would ever consider them citizens because they always represented their own interests and not the interests of the people uh, they lived uh, among. That's been the problem. That problem has not gone away. It's only gotten worse. So it goes, we now have this crisis revolve, resolve, uh, revolving around this concept of equality which is one of the fundamental principles of the French Revolution and principle of the modern state. And it's led to God knows what, you know, now transgendered. You're supposed to allow people, uh, doctors to mutilate children in the interest of equality or something like that. It's become totally bizarre, but we have to face up to this fact. Can, can this group of people do, can, is it possible for them to serve in government without distorting the policies uh, and pursuing policies that are inimical to the interest of the majority? That's a fundamental question that we have to ask now because of all of the bad experience we've had and all of these people who are serving in government who have dual citizenship with, with Israel. Would that be a place to start? Is someone going to take that on? No one with dual citizenship uh, is allowed to serve in the government. Wouldn't that be a step in the right direction? But it have a disparate impact on a certain very powerful oppressed ethnic group. They're oppressed and powerful. I don't understand how that works. <laughs> I don't either, but uh, it seems to work well for them. Yeah, they, then they can do things like they have like black proxies, like Merrick Garland installs Kristen Clark at the Department of Justice Office of Civil Rights uh, Enforcement or Division, what they call it. And she's an avowed black supremacist. She actually believes that blacks are superior, smarter, and more peaceful. Right. Than the white counterparts. And just this person is in charge of enforcing civil rights. But then again, I heard Merrick Garland talk about the Justice Department was created to defend black people from white people. And white people are evil. In his Who knew? It was, uh, <laughs> it, so. it, it, it's probably in one of those amendments. Or it's probably in the Constitution somewhere, but no one figured it out up until this. Yeah. Now I'm so, looking yeah, at the crime statistics. I'm seeing something completely opposite of that. But that's all. Yeah. But that's because you're a white guy. <laughs> you know, you can't yeah. help yourself. But the, the other point is that it's never uh, simply Jewish interest. You know, there always have some type of crusade uh, and, and creation of proxy warriors. Well, there was someone, someone who read, I think I was reading, uh, yeah, Kerry uh, Bolton. He has a book called The, the Tyranny of Human Rights. And he says that uh, human rights were discovered in South Africa the moment they found gold and diamonds. Yeah. <laughs> so it's exploited. Yeah. These divisions. Or, or like yeah. the like the civil rights movement. Yes. Yeah. Was a classic example of the Jews using blacks as their proxy warriors. You know, uh, 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 Brown versus school board was based on Jewish science. And Murray Friedman is a guy who said this and he's bragging about it. he was the head of the uh, AJC, the American Jewish Committee in, uh, in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, and that's where when our great uh, uh, Archbishop Chaput was talking about school prayer, and he said it was done by secularizing activists, uh, wrote that article in First Things. Uh, no, it was the Jew American Jewish Committee. It was Leo Pfeffer. It was Milton Schapp. It was all of these people. And to say that you don't know that means you, you're, you're never going to get to the root of the problem here. 
We, we have to start connecting these dots and we have to start making decisions along these lines. One of the decisions is going to be in Pennsylvania because you've got Josh Shapiro running against a, a man who has a vowel at the end of his name. So he's Italian, mm-hmm. uh, presumably Catholic, uh, a Republican, certainly. Didn't he, is, didn't he endorse Christian nationalism or something? Am I mistaking that? Is that uh, no, wrote... uh, Andrew Torba has written a book called Christian. Yeah, I think uh, he, he talked about that book or something. I might Chris, be mistaken. So I don't he, know. he mentioned Christian nationalism, and yeah. then uh, he has supported uh, Mastriano. Okay, that's what. Okay, yeah. In in the case, so I think I think we have a people of Pennsylvania have a clear choice, uh, and certainly there are never enough. Jews. Well, when you have a Jewish governor, uh, closed churches does that pr- pr- get your attention? <laughs> I'm just saying. No. Or Pritzker in Illinois, where they're calling it the uh, I think they're calling it the the purge law, the Safety Act, where they're pretty much uh, doing with all cash bail, sort of uh, giving criminals the free run of, of the state. Yeah, the Jews yeah. are g- getting heavily involved in this type of thing, and so you you get this increasing criminality. So you got a clear. J- Josh uh, Shapiro uh, went after the Catholic Church. He brags about it in his campaign literature. He took on the the, the most powerful institution in the world. Uh, you mean you mean you mean the IPAC? No, no. He meant uh, the Catholic Church. He didn't release like forty names or four hundred names of accusations about any. No, I think it was 300 names. It was the grand, yeah. grand jury. Grand jury is fact-finding commission. Yeah. Okay. So he found uh, enough material there to bring out one indictment, uh, but he released the names of 300 priests. Well, that's unconscionable. You, What you're saying is you have absolutely no reason to, to prosecute these people. So why are you blackening their name by releasing it? And he's running on this. Yeah. So any Catholic who votes for Josh Shapiro has got to be crazy. Uh, well, just like uh, wasn't it? Uh, isn't a Jewish gal that leaked the Supreme Court? Uh, they suspected there's no investigation. Yeah, that's right. It was right one, abortion. It, yeah, that's right. He, I, 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 I forgot her name now. It was a blip, but uh, yeah, no, she did that with impunity. No one ever got prosecuted for releasing the uh, Alito's statement. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that that was that. Now. I I just said any Catholic would have to be crazy to vote for Josh Shapiro. But then, you know, I just went back to Philadelphia. I went back to where I went to high school. And we were talking about how all of these Catholic girls schools were uh, run by nuns. And the nuns all became feminists. And they taught feminism in these schools. And if you teach feminism, uh, chances are the young girls are going to end up uh, getting sexually active and then they're going to have abortions. And once they've had abortion, they vote like Jews. That's the whole point. That's why Ruth Bader Ginsburg was so adamant about uh, imposing abortion on the entire country. That is how they have their power. That is where their power comes from. It's the sexual corruption of the majority. You get them involved in horrible sin like killing your own child and then you create a movement around it called feminism which ensures that they will never repent for the sins that they've committed and you got that's the backbone i don't think this is an exaggeration i think that's the backbone of the democratic party right now mm-hmm. yeah at the same time you can do nothing to protect uh you know the public from pornography or sexual corruption uh, because that's the first amendment but the political speech is is uh strictly uh limited you know hate speech laws and these things and that's one thing that uh, you talk about in your article queen elizabeth the first is uh the twitter social media constant pornographic imagery comes up and there's nothing apparently no sovereign can step in and stop this no and it is what well, she was a sovereign but she apparently either didn't want to exercise the power uh to act like as a sovereign to protect her country protect the heritage uh, the she was she was the head yeah. of the Church of England mm-hmm. at this time, and that's what I said. What did she do to prevent the moral decline that followed from the corruption of the Church of England? When you prevented the unification with the Catholic Church, which was likely to happen after Vatican II, when you allowed homosexuals to become bishops, when you allowed this type of de- degradation to spread through the church, and did she did nothing to oppose it? Nothing, nothing. So why are we lionizing a woman who, uh, where she could, I think she could have had some effect with the church. And the effect that she had was to promote decadence and it 
returned to bite her uh, through her family, her children. Her family was corrupted by it, yeah. That's right. Yeah, you heard stories about Margaret in the 60s and the wild parties and swinging London and all that. And uh, and then we had that situation with Andrew and Jeffrey Epstein. Well, that's yeah, Epstein. And there's a Jewish, another Jewish connection. Uh, yeah, I guess coincidence, uh, just coincidence, yeah. just coincidence. <laughs> uh, had yeah. nothing to do with his behavior. Yeah, well, like I said, there's someone that said that, you know, with a queen, what's her job as a sovereign queen is with well, a monarch, they have some sense of, um, they may, their time rises may be different. They have some sense of, I guess, propriety. Uh, they have a uh, sort of a, a, a proprietorship view of the country, theoretically. And whereas in a democracy, you're bound to get some, some, some you know, some scheming politician who wants to get rich in, in a few years. Yeah. In a monarchy, this is the event. And she didn't live up to that. She could have been a martyr for a greater cause, whether her supposed Christian faith. or For just, her people, for, for the Christian people. people of England. Yeah. So I'm saying the rule, the rule of British ceremony is the number of uh, uniforms is in direct proportion to the rise of decadence. The more the decadence spread throughout the culture, the more you have to have uh, hundreds of soldiers in all those exotic uniforms marching around in, uh, yeah. in perfect synchronized step to disguise the fact that she did nothing, did nothing to stem the decay of morals which was her job. The job was to prevent this, at the very least, as her because of her position as head of the Church of England. You know, she what, did nothing. You know, what, that's what the crown is for. You know. Uh, yeah. So okay. So you don't have any control over foreign policy. Okay, but you did have control over the Church of England, and you did nothing to stem the tide of decadence. And try now we're going to cover it over because we're going to have 500 soldiers with bearskin caps marching in your funeral to distract us from the fact that you did nothing to protect your own people. And I guess England is, is another example of proof that if a, if a country uh, is alienated from its Christian faith, it, it's it's uh, it, it's a country that's soon to die and be taken over. Or you never by who. Yeah, that, that's exactly what Civita Cattolica said. Mm -hmm. They said it with regard to France. If a country turns away from Christian rulers and Christian laws, it will be ruled by Jews. Well, if there's ever, ever proof of that, it's England, much more so than uh, than France. Yes. Well, I said I had it for an hour, so I don't want to cheat. Uh, the article is Requiem uh, for a Figurehead. It was in the UNS Review. Um, anything else you want to uh, tell us about? Be coming up? Yes, lots coming up. Uh, Dangers of Beauty is available. Now. I just gave mm -hmm. two uh, real, uh, real uh, great talks. I mean, great, great audiences uh, in both Philadelphia and West Virginia. So, oh, those, be, uh, can you watch those? Uh, there's an audio. Oh, it's an audio. Have. Okay, you'll be posting there's that. An audio. Then? It will be posted tomorrow. Okay, great. Uh, so you can go to culturewars.com, uh, buy the book, uh, listen to the audio, and, uh, you know, anyway, thanks for having me. It was a great discussion once again. Thank you for coming back on the show. I'll let you enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. Good night, then. Bye-bye. Good night.
Let me go.